Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Okay, today I have Sujan Patel from Mailshake, and he's going to be telling us a little bit about how it was to start that business. Sujan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to share the story and you know help pave the way forward for future entrepreneurs and, and software founders. So basically, it looks like what you're telling me, it's the salespeople had a bigger pain, right? Their pain were bigger, their, their outcomes were better for them because they're making sales and they were they become a better customer for for the product. Uh, it took you a little bit to figure that out, but one thing when you say about p- people being very picky, I always say if the pain is big enough, people are going to be more patient <laughs> with, with okay products as, as you keep improving your product. Uh, when there's a bigger pain, there's a little bit more patience. Uh, would, would you agree with that statement and you think that's why it worked well f- for that target? I, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, and I think on the marketing front, there wasn't that big of a pain because there was other tools out there. Like people did it manually. Like there are many other ways to move forward where like the sales reps, like they wanted, they really wanted to make more money. They were like hungry at whatever can give them a leg up to make close more deals. Their willingness to do it was just far greater um, to try and test and whatever. And so, yeah, I think that was a, a you know, um, a, a big wow moment. And again, like, I didn't really think much of it because I was looking at this as like, this is my side project. In fact, like the way I looked at this was my wife at the time was getting her MBA. And I'm like, I had successful exit, uh, sold my marketing agency. I was like, I will get my MBA too, but I hate school. Can't sit there and learn. <laughs> I learned by doing so. I like, I'll do this. This is my MBA. I devoted a hundred grand of my own money to go spend in doing this. Um, and then, you know, 50,000 users later, we're still, we're still at it growing. Hey, Ren, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Phil. With having a, a development agent, so many times people come with us to build version two of their product. And they show us the product. The product's really making millions of dollars a year. And we look at the product and it's horrible. It's like the interface is bad. It's not works properly, but they're solving such a big problem. And it's so niche down. Again, like it's not, never going to be that big VC company, but it's, it's a problem that they only they understand and it's being so well solved that people are paying for. And now they have the money they're hiring us to build a, a, a little bit of a better product. But it, that's for sure a reality that I see all the time. Uh, if the problem is big enough, people are going <laughs> to keep using it. It doesn't matter how bad it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what is the biggest challenge that you have to date on, on this new uh, startup of yours, like on SparkToro, what do you would say like that has been the biggest challenge? Yeah, I think for us, it is probably right now, we have the challenge that a lot of people who would benefit from doing audience research don't think about it as a problem that they need to solve or prioritize. Um, and that that is, I think, because it is not in the classic kind of marketing, digital marketing stack. Like it's not, it's not talked about. It's not thought of. There's no conference sessions about audience research. Nobody has the job title, you know, director of audience research. 
Um, when, when you think of like, you know, hiring a digital marketing agency or hiring someone to do marketing for you, you think about, well, are they going to do SEO or PPC or content marketing, or are they going to do email marketing? Are we going to do paid ads, performance marketing, all that kind of stuff. And audience research or, or marketing through sources of influence, like it doesn't have a, a name. It doesn't really have a, it's not a thing, right? So kind of like in my early days at Moz, SEO was not considered a thing. People were like, SEO, that's that spammy, scammy, like sketchy thing. I'm not, nobody does that, right? Like only a bunch of basement dwelling butts, you know, are going to try that stuff. Like I'm not, I'm not doing any SEO. And it took 12 years, 13 years at least before people, you know, from like 2001 to 2014, 15, I was still hearing people saying they're not doing SEO. Today, no more. Every, every single online business thinks about SEO. They think about PPC. They think about content marketing. Maybe they don't invest in it actively, but they know it's there. They've considered it, right? It's, it's in their uh, wheelhouse. And that took a long time in the SEO field. I think this is going to be the same thing, right? I think that people... It's going to take a decade, maybe two, to get people into the mindset of, oh, before I go do my marketing, I should understand what social networks my audience is using and who they follow on each of them. I should understand which email newsletters they read. I should understand what websites they visit. I want to figure out what YouTube channels they subscribe to and what podcasts they listen to and all these behaviors and demographics so that I can reach my audience in the right place at the right time with the right message. And I should do that with numbers, not just how I feel about it. Today, I'm excited to chat with Afonso Delanos, the founder of UserZoom. Welcome to the show, Afonso. Thank you so much for having me, Phil. It's a pleasure. So let's say I'm a SaaS product and I'm having a, a little bit of issue with retention, with churn. Churn, you know, kills SaaS business every single day. Uh, how can UserZoom help me with that? I'm actually well known internally in the company as the retention freak. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, retention is everything for a SaaS business. So like you said, so, and there's multiple ways to look at it, grow, you know, uh, gross or net uh, revenue, customer, all, all sorts of stuff. And I think that you, that's what you have to do as a SaaS business. And so um, when you look at um, uh, retention, you know, um, in today's world where uh, software is purchased uh, by users uh, sometimes, right? You don't, it's not like the old way or the old times when, uh, you know, let's say the, you know, uh, chief uh, level or the chief information officer or the CTO or, you know, the VPs would buy software for everybody. Today, software is, is bought or is purchased by the end users. And when, and you usually buy with a monthly subscription or with an annual subscription. And so in the past, once again, uh, it was purchased and it was installed everywhere, right? Um, whether it was a startup or uh, more specifically in an enterprise, you have thousands of users and you just had them use the product, right? Uh, but in the SaaS uh, world we live in, now the users buy it and the users use it. And if after the, let's just say the term, let's just, for, for the sake of this conversation, let's think about a year or an annual subscription. If after a year or even a few months, um, if you don't use the product, if you don't have adoption and usage that can prove the validity or the value of the product, um, you, know, simply, you simply, uh, the, the company is not going to renew, right? So really, it's a much more, I would say, much more um, a fair 
and um, the right way to, to acquire or to purchase uh, software, to continue purchasing software. It's either providing value or not. Now, having said that, you can break that down into, into multiple stages. So for instance, when you buy, um, you, know, you wanna buy something um, and start using it right away. Have a great onboarding experience. You know, get going uh, easily. Um, it, today, in today's world, we don't like to call customer support or, call, or, or read manuals or go to YouTube to figure out how to use a product, which sometimes it happens, right? Uh, with many products out there. Um, so yeah, build, um, build a product that, that has a, a phenomenal onboarding experience. You only have one chance to provide a great first experience, right? There's only one chance. Um, so uh, great UX and great UX design that understands clearly what the end user is going to need, is going to look for, and even exceed expectations in that sense, you know, in, in that sense, by providing them with guidance um, and, and again, convenience and ease of use. That is absolutely critical for that onboarding experience. You know, when retention actually starts or when the retention strategy should start, you know, whether it's from customer success or product people or account managers or whatever, it starts on day one, right? As soon as they uh, log in, the first three months are going to actually uh, tell, maybe even less than three months, are going to tell whether they're going to renew or not. Because if you don't get going, you're probably dropping that product and you're just leaving it out there and you're not going to use it, right? But um, if you do have a great, a great experience, a great product experience, a great user experience, um, um, then what's going to happen is that um, the end user is going to become your best salesperson, your best marketer. They're going to tell everybody inside an organization, hey, use this. It's super convenient. I got it, I got going super easily and it worked. And then all of a sudden now, others jump in and through either a credit card or somehow you know through an expansion, um, they're going to uh, expand, right? And that's what uh, net, uh, net retention rate is, right? Is, um, you know, is, is how much uh, of the book of business is renewed plus the expansion dollars on top of it, right? Okay, today I have Brian from Greenpaw here in the show. Brian, thanks for coming over. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. What are the things that I need to become the 80-20 good? And that, again, it's what's going to allow you when you hire someone that's better than you at the job, you know how to make the hire, you know the right questions to ask, and you have a bar. Now, that's right. you have to be better than me because I'm, I'm right. hiring you to do that's this right. one uh, every right. job. <laughs> you better right. be better than me at this. But if you don't have the 80-20 skills, you don't know how to make the hire, you're going to keep making mistakes. Yep. Uh, and I think that's kind of like the whole theme of our conversation today. It is go back, go down, uh, learn that, become the 80-20 good at selling, at developing a product, HR, SEO, copywriting, and then you can hire other people. But the 80-20 is going to be enough to get you going. It's kind of like where you should be in the early days of building a, a SaaS product. Yeah. And it's, this doesn't get talked about a lot and it should, it should get talked about more. And when you're starting a new business, you're doing three things at once at all times. You're working in the business, you're just making sure the damn thing is running. And then you're working on the business. You're developing the systems, processes, routines. You're trying to make a business, not a job. And then the third thing is, is you're working on yourself. You are reading blogs. You are taking online classes. You are reading books. You are going to YouTube University. You're going to a boot camp, whatever. And the reality is, man, like in the first three, four years, it's a seven day a week thing because there's only so many hours in the week. Maybe Monday through Friday is in the business. Saturday might be on the business. Sunday is your on yourself day. And one thing I liked to do was try to knock out 
some of these things like at the same time. So as I was coding, I would be listening to a podcast from somebody in product development. Or as I was running in the morning, like I try to run every morning, I would listen to a podcast on product design or something. So anytime I could double dip, that was always fun. But you're doing all three things at once, probably throughout the entire journey of, of being a founder, but definitely in the first three or four years. Yes, for sure. That's amazing. And I think, again, that's amazing feedback here because you don't hear that. You only hear the success story. You only hear about that amazing VP of X that was at a company. You can afford that person. You better yeah. do the 80-20 rule. So that's right. what was like kind of like your biggest fear when you were starting this company? I was never fearful that it wouldn't work because I saw it work in, in analog. I guess my biggest fear was not necessarily imposter syndrome, but I wasn't a tech guy. I spent 15 years running a blue collar business, you know, very much as blue collar as you can get. And so then jumping into the tech world, I was almost feeling like, well, am I really cut out for this? I don't know how to do any of this stuff. All this stuff is foreign to me. But at the same time, it was kind of fun. It was kind of fun learning new things because spending 15 years in the landscaping business, it kind of got dull after year 10. And so that was, that was fun, but that was also scary because it's like, okay, do these people have something that I don't? And am I capable of playing this game? And for the first three years, I really wasn't. But then the big unlock for me was I learned that I could pretty much learn anything I needed to learn if I was willing to sufficiently dedicate myself to it. And that was a cool thing to learn about myself, I guess you could say. Because a lot of times we do things because we have titles. It's like, oh, okay, I'm a product person, so I can do things with product. Or I'm an engineer, so I can write code. Or I'm a designer, so I design. But the reality is, like, you can do anything. You don't have to. You're not relegated to your title. And starting a company will teach you that, that, that you're going to have to do it all. So you're going to have to learn how to do it all. And so in the early days, I was kind of scared if I, was, if I was able to overcome that. But if you just keep working on it and you keep growing the number, no matter how small it is, eventually it does work itself out. I think the biggest insight here is like avoid the noise. Like, right, you had too many people in and there was too much noise. And it took you guys a few years to like, okay, you're welcome to use the product, but this is, the, this is noise. We're going to focus on the people that are more likely to stay, that's going to churn less, and that's going to allow us to keep scaling and get bigger. I think, I think that's the biggest insight of like, yeah, the so story. I think the way I look at this is like figure out how to remove noise. First, look at how to identify noise, right? Um, and, and again, like, look at your data. You have 500 customers. Who is the right customer, right? And you, you can clearly find it out. And if there's no one, well, boom, you don't have product market fit. Go find the right customer. But the next thing is actually, um, it's really being smart about noise versus, like, long-term traction, right? And I didn't realize that fast enough. And then when we realized that, we didn't do anything about it because we were worried about losing revenue. By the time we realized these founders and, and solopreneurs were not the right customer, uh, we were already making over a million dollars a year from this customer segment. So in hindsight, I should have said, not building for this customer. But think about this. If somebody's giving you, thousands of customers are giving you a million dollars a year, it's really hard to say no to a million dollars, you know? But, you know, in hindsight, it was like a $10 million mistake and we could have, we could have been the billion dollar space sales engagement we're in. We could have got more market share in there, which is peanuts to that million dollar decision I had to make in 2018. So many times we all think we are outliers and, we, and most of us are not. 
And you don't have to be an outlier to be a successful founder, to have an amazing business and to live a great life. That's absolutely right. And, and the thing, I think what's really amazing, right? What, what I hope that we can do here is prioritize an amazing life. The business comes second. It just does, right? That's not to say that some weeks or some days, hey, there's, you know, I got to crunch down and there's a whole bunch of hard work and I'm going to have to work late some night. Yeah, sometimes I do it. We all do it sometimes. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But the vast majority of the time, it's, ah, gosh, I really want to see my cousins down in San Diego this summer. You know what? I just got to, I just got to book a ticket and, um, and make it happen. And eh, this, you know, all these work priorities, I'm just going to email some folks and be like, Hey, I'm sorry, I committed this thing, but I can't do it. And yes, it'll probably cost me some business and that is okay. That's fine. Right. You get to make that choice because it's, it's your business. And man, there is something really beautiful about being able to prioritize your life by what's important to you, as opposed to, you know, sort of a commitment that you've made to a billionaire capitalist who, you know, <laughs> who wants you to make him a few hundred million more. <laughs> that guy that's already rich. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, this is the weirdest part. The weirdest part is like when you're working for venture folks, like they're all so filthy rich, like just disgustingly rich. And and all the people who invested in them, disgustingly rich, right? Like like billions of dollars. Um, th there's the occasional like pension fund or something like that that you might be helping out, but but they allocate very very small amounts of their uh, dollars to venture as an asset. And so yeah, it's just it's just a little odd, right? Like you go hang out with your investor and you're like, oh, that's that's a great Ferrari, and they're like, oh, you should see my other one. And you, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.